my one off. Buckle up, baby. You're after something. Is it revenge? Money? Or is it something else? If you come with us, you're in this life for good. Solo, a Star Wars story. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? Where this week we get into our spaceships, go into hyperdrive, and talk about Solo, a Star Wars story, the second anthology movie that was made by Lucasfilm. But in chronological order, it comes first. We'll get to Rogue One next week. Calm down, everyone. With me, as always, is my good friend, Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for another lovely introduction, as always. Yes, uh, fellow uh, fellow Star Wars nerds, we're here. And uh, we're doing a chronological, even said. So uh, I know this isn't probably the direction you may want to go in, but we're going to have a lot of shut up and listen, all right? No, I'm just, I don't want to be disrespectful. We're going to have a great time. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be very respectful of this movie. I, I'll be honest, you know, not to spoil final thoughts, very. but this movie is like fun. It's fun. We'll get into the pros and cons of it, but it's like a fun movie. Yeah, fun's a good word. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Maybe very entertaining. Not- An entertaining romp, as people would say. <laughs> is that what the young people say these days? A fun That's romp. That's what I've heard. Oh, that's what you heard? Okay. Anyway, there's uh, actually a lot to talk about with this movie, specifically in the production. So let's jump right into it. All right. As you may or may not know, the person who gets credit for directing this movie is a Mr. Ron Howard. Maybe you've heard of him. But he was not the first director to be chosen to pick up this mantle. The original idea was for Lord and Miller, the directors of Sonny with the Chance of Meatballs and uh, what's the other one? And 21 Jump Street. Cloudy with a Chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, Cloudy. Sorry, not Sonny. And, uh, <laughs> it's always cloudy in Philadelphia. It's always it's cloudy always, in Meatballs. And it's always town. sunny with, <laughs> with Meatballs. I've never actually watched the movie, but I heard it's pretty good. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs? Yeah. Yeah, I, I never saw it, but I heard it's great. I, heard, I mean, it's Lord of Miller, so it's got to yeah. be good, right? And Bill Hader. So yeah. how bad could it be? And in July 2015, they were announced to be directing this movie. Yay! So let's just, before we get into the dark period, let's talk about the other part of it. They spent a year and a half casting Han Solo. They saw 25,000 actors. Oh my God. <laughs> Ultimately... They went with Alden Ehrenreich, who was ironically the first actor they auditioned. (laughs) He went through six rounds of audition. Six rounds. My God. Because obviously this movie is about Han Solo, a character we all are familiar with and love. Well, I'll be honest, Han Solo has never been my favorite, but to a lot of people, he is their favorite character. Casting was obviously difficult. In January 2017, they started filming. 
Lord and Miller's idea was to push new boundaries. You know, they tried to improvise on this movie. Uh, there are times when it would take 30 takes. They would do like literally 30 takes, which pushed the budget. On top of that, Lauren Kasdan, the writer of this movie with his son, because uh, Lawrence and John Kasdan wrote this movie. Some people may know Lawrence Kasdan helped write the original trilogy. He did not come back for the prequel trilogy because him and George had a falling out over the idea of where the script should go. But they brought Lawrence Kasdan back and he thought he wrote a pretty good script and was not too pleased that the directors were taking liberties with it. And it all falls into hearsay right now. You know, there's no official recount of how things fell. But rumor is that Lawrence Kasdan, along with Alden Ehrenreich, kind of made subtle hints to Kathleen Kennedy, like things may not be going as great as they should be because they filmed this in London. Things may not be going the way that they should be on set. Kathleen Kennedy at this point finally decides to watch the dailies because why watch the dailies while the movie's filming? Right, of course. And three weeks before uh, Lord and Miller were supposed to be done filming the movie, the axe comes down and she fires them. No, yeah, I was saying I have a quote here that they were talking about the deep when they were discussing the quote unquote deep fundamental differences between Kathleen Kennedy and Lawrence uh, Kennedy. Uh, appeared to be a quote-unquote screwball comedy angle, which was reportedly turning Solo's char- legendary character in one that was akin to Jim Carrey's Ace Ventura. <laughs> yeah. I mean... A lot of slapstick and stuff and a lot of stuff that was not really going according to plan, I guess, or what they thought was plan- the plan yeah. before they hired... Lord we will Miller. never know because we will never see the footage of what really happened, you know... Maybe it was an exaggeration that he was becoming Ace Ventura. Maybe it was spot on. We will never know. Because when Ron Howard was announced to take on in July of 2017, he reshot 70 to 80% of the entire movie. (laughs) Wild. Which is wild. Which, I mean, the only shot that I know for fact was Lord and Miller was when Chewie gets into the shower with Han Solo on the in the movie but other than that i have no idea his takeover and the reshoots the biggest casualty other than lord and miller was actually michael k williams who was in this movie and could not return for the reshoots so paul bettany took over for him that's right yeah michael k williams was supposed to be dryden voss who was supposed to be more of an alien creature but you know, they, they kind of tweaked put, it. Put makeup on Bettany and they were like, all right, you're 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 it. You're the new guy. Well, he's used to Disney putting makeup on him. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so um, let's get into some uh, actual production stuff. First, I wanted to make a note that Bradley Whitford was the cinematographer on this movie, which marks him as the first Black uh, the first black cinematographer of a Star Wars movie, which good, good. Good on them. And he used a very um, 
authentic lighting. He, I, I think he has like a Kubrick thing because he wanted to use net, you know, quote unquote, natural lighting for this movie or as natural as he can get. So in the casino sequence, for example, he kept lights very dim, very dark, but like it was all authentic light. The Millennium Falcon cockpit was actually constructed and put on a rig with a projector outside of it. So it looked and felt as though you were act, you know, Alden Ehrenreich was actually flying the Millennium Falcon. That's pretty cool. Would have been pretty cool to do. Theoretically, you can get this experience at Disney World now because they have a ride where you get to fly the Millennium Falcon, though I have heard it's not great. Um, they redesigned the Millennium Falcon, obviously, for this movie because it's supposed to be new, even though this retcons a bit of what we saw in episode three because the Falcon is in episode three for a brief second. Uh, when Palpatine, Anakin, and Obi-Wan reach the Senate, if you look underneath their shuttle, the Millennium Falcon's just kind of- Bottom like of the frame, in. just briefly. Just briefly, but the, it doesn't matter. They decided to go for a redesign. Uh, so they came up with a lot of designs, <laughs> a lot. They tried multiple paint designs, including a Smokey and the Bandit design, which didn't work. Uh, but they landed on a sports car in a junkyard. That's kind of the thing they were going for. Mm -hmm. Phoebe Waller-Bridge was actually on set wearing a green... Uh, uh, what's it called? She looked like Green Man from It's Always Sunny. She's wearing a green screen <laughs> with like a couple of little uh, robotic trinkets about, uh, strewn about her. Right. Uh, Chewie, uh, they got new sounds for him because original the original sounds for Chewie were simply from one bear. It was one bear sound, but for this, they needed a, a wider breadth of sounds. So they spent a day with a grizzly bear to record. They also got other animals like sea lions and lions and crazy stuff like that. Lando's costuming. Really expanding uh, the Wookiee... Uh... The Wookiee yeah. lore. Uh, Lando's costuming the Wookiee was, yeah, 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 yeah. was based off of rock stars, specifically Marvin Gaye, uh, Jimi Hendrix, and Prince. And just in case uh, we missed, <laughs> just in case we didn't cover one problem with this movie, it, let's talk about another, the posters. So they went with a brand new kind of outlook for the posters of this movie. The, originally when they dropped, it was like bold and interesting and different. But then uh, about like a couple days later, people started to realize these posters are plagiarized <laughs> from a legacy album of black artists. They just literally ripped it <laughs> off. It was the identical font with identical coloring and identical no. uh, positions of characters. I didn't know that. <laughs> they are literally um, pulled for, and they were taken to court over it, which is <laughs> ridiculous. This movie cost Disney a fortune. Um, oh, that's bad. And then if that wasn't oh, bad enough, no. as soon as those posters- I'm sorry, I'm just Googling it. It's bad. It's really bad. <laughs> and if that wasn't bad enough, they had to go through another reshuffle because after- they looked at 
the posters that were originally released, they decided, you know what? Guns should not be in the poster. So they went back and they took out Han Solo's gun, they took out Kira's gun, and they took out Chewie's crossbow. So if you look on one of the Solo posters, Han actually has three arms because they tried to remove the gun but forgot to take out the arm. Um, oh my god this is just it's just a mess all over the place it's a mess all over the place and (laughs) disney price the budget for this movie was 275 to 300 million dollars with the reshoots and with the marketing and the remarketing and the reposters this movie probably cost about 400 to 500 million dollars they won't announce that as the actual price but i'm telling you that's got to be where it is which makes the box office returns of 393.2 million dollars it makes that all the more uh, hard hitting. That that's not a good return for the amount of money and time that you put into this movie. It's outrageous. So it's a tough blow. <laughs> but let's put this also into context here. This movie came out six months after the Last Jedi. Now, whether you like the Last Jedi or whether you didn't like the Last Jedi, there is no denying that there was a tectonic shift in the way in which Star Wars fans felt after The Last Jedi. It was divisive. It was divisive, to say the least. least. It was polarizing. It was all those things. It was the Star Wars movie that broke Star Wars fandom. Whether you like it or not, I know from experience, you know, I love The Last Jedi, but six months after The Last Jedi, the last thing I wanted to do was see a movie about Han Solo. 100%. It was a poor Mark's strategy. Yeah, and I don't want to get into my final thoughts necessarily but i again talking from personal experience i'm not that interested in han solo and especially without harrison ford i'm not that interested in han solo so like i just went into this movie like what is the point and i feel like that was a lot of star wars fans in general with this movie it's like why why are we doing this (laughs) now the six month window is actually more interesting than i kind of let on because kathleen kennedy after firing lord and miller wanted to push the release date back into december this is the first star wars movie that dropped in may since revenge of the sith disney kind of like staked their claim in december for star wars movies after firing lord and miller kathleen kennedy wanted desperately to push the release date for solo back to December because she felt that the movie was not going to be ready in time and thought that people were a little weary of Star Wars at the time. Bob Iger, still CEO at the time, told her, no. He not said the movie is coming out in May. That's what we that's what we announced. Marvel is able to get two movies out at minimum of two movies out a year. You can make two movies a year. And Bob Iger has since said that he has regretted that decision. (laughs) Of course. Yes, he said that that is the wrong decision. Oh, God, Bob. Bob. All right. So that's all I got. I think we Um, spent a good amount of time. If you have anything, please. No, I I have no notes. I was going to say before this movie's released, one of my favorite, uh, someone had made like a meme out of it. One of my favorite bits is like, they said, if this movie doesn't open with Harrison Ford with Harrison Ford and Force Awakens getting stabbed by Kylo Ren and then freeze frame and Harrison Ford's narration 
uh, saying, you're probably wondering how I got here. It's like, then I'm not going, I'm not seeing this movie, then I'm boycotting it. And it's just funny because like, I imagine like the Lord and Miller, because we always joke about, you know, what would the Lord and Miller cut look like? And I feel like that's not based on what we had heard. I feel like that wouldn't be far off from the kind of humor. You know what? Let's have <laughs> this conversation now before we get into final thoughts, because I want to get all the Lord and Miller's stuff out of the way. Because when we get to final <laughs> conversation, I just want to talk about the movie we have, not the movie we could have had. Of course. So let's talk about Lord and Miller now in an, yeah. in, in an expanded way. Do you think it would have been a better movie? Of course. Do you really? given that they said that it was going to look like an Ace Ventura movie. I, I think that, I, I yeah, I absolutely, because what I've seen from them, I trust them so wholeheartedly that even if the movie diverted enough from what I felt like was, uh, was um, under the branding of quote-unquote Star Wars, which is what the, the movie we got very much so catered to, I still think I would have preferred it even if it diverted from the lore of, of Star, the Star Wars universe. You know what I mean? It would have, I think it, because I know their sense of humor tickles my fancy, I think I would have loved it, even if a lot of people would have been like, this is absolute bullshit, you know? No, I, I get that. I just, I don't know. I feel, would I Would it have I felt understand. like Star Wars? <laughs> no, that's exactly what I was about to say. Would it have felt like Star Wars? I, I just don't know. I, like you, I tend to agree that Lord and Miller have a would have given us a fresher movie. I feel like Ron Howard, I'm not trying to denigrate him or his work, but he's coming off of a bunch of like stale movies at this point. You know, the movie he directed right before this was like either The Heart of the Sea or the third movie in that Tom Hanks franchise, Inferno or whatever Rush. it was. Uh, Rush, Rush was, was 2013. Oh, so it was already a few years back, yeah. Because yeah. Rush was pretty good. Rush was pretty good. Um, I see what you're saying, though. I think it would have been fresher if it was Lord and Miller. But I, like you said, I don't know if it would have been Star Wars. But then again... It wouldn't have... Is, then again, it's all been fan fiction since George left anyway, in reality. Like, right. Because George is Star Wars to a lot of, of people and to the universe. So at this point, it's like, what would George have done? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to tease my final thoughts. And you and I have had so many discussions off air about this, but it's like, it's like Star Wars feels like post- George and especially picking being picked up by Disney it's like it feels too safe it feels too routine it feels too conformed to tradition and of course that's going to bite them in the ass when they get to Rise of Skywalker and you and I will do a whole thing on that but basically that's what I we love about The Last Jedi and I'm not going to make the conversation about that but Star Wars is as demanded I think my philosophy Star Wars has always demanded a need to expand the universe. And George said the quote best, you know the quote about how he said, you know, I feel like you need to add new planets and new designs and this and that. And so the, when he was talking about his criticisms of, when George was talking about his criticisms of The Force Awakens, that's what he mentioned. And that logic, that little bit of dialogue from George, I think applies to what goes wrong with Solo, even though the production design and all that jazz is incredible. I'll, I'll go into that, we'll go into that later, but. Um, Lord and Miller, I just think, would have given something new, but would it have been Star Wars? I was about to say, they would have given us something 
new, but is it the new that we're looking for? Because that's yes, a great question. I agree that Star Wars should be pushing the bounds from a storytelling perspective, but it sounds like Lord and Miller were going to give us a new perspective from a comedy point of view, you know, not necessarily of a course. story and point of view. I don't know. And right, I completely agree with you. Yeah. In reality, after this movie, the thought process was there were going to be sequels. So if Lord and Miller made such a distinct movie, then every subsequent sequel would have to follow that Pattern. formula and yeah, that yeah, weight. Yeah. And it would have just kind of like, you know, I, I'm imagining in Endgame, the ancient one and the Hulk talking, and it just like creates a string universe, you know? And you're just in a completely different, like it's on the same timeline, but it's like a different string. And you're just like, what is happening here? But then again, we don't know. We'll never know. Until you do a Star Trek reboot or X-Men Days of Future Past, you know, like like slap of the franchises together where you're like, hey, the old stuff happened, but now here we're going to go in this direction. You can have it both ways. And like a lot of people don't like when franchises do that. But I see what you're saying is there, it creates this alternate multiverse timeline. You're like, I want to like a, a community talk like i want to live in the in the timeline the darkest timeline where it's not even the about Lord timeline it's just about where that it's not necessarily about timeline it's just like a different string of like how a star wars movie looks and acts and feels you know? oh of course and like you're saying from a comedic point of view is like really see my the, the comedian in me wants to see like the person like the what i mean that is like the person who resonates with comedies like that's why i'm dying to to see what that would look like in a Lord and Miller cut because it's been so long since we saw a comedy like a good comedy right and it breaks and the thing is it's like I think that's part of what it is is like when I see comedy in Star Wars it's very lighthearted and it's fine and the original trilogy obviously more so it's just like uh it's for its time there's really the the prequels are pretty much humorless so that's what's great about the force awakens and even the last jet the whole disney sequel trilogy is that it's it injects humor in a way that the original trilogy did but we've never seen comedy in a deeper dive and in a sense star wars shouldn't be completely comedic that's kind of what Lauren, I don't have the exact quotes. I just know the generalization that Lawrence Kasdan is the one who kind of interjected comedy into Star Wars. He came up with the mm-hmm. classic lines that we Correct. know and kind of like laugh at. And in his mind, the comedy should be situational, not necessarily like someone call like it. Like a slapstick dialogue. Yeah. I, completely, I agree with that because like, then that's not Star Wars. The, the best example I can give is the line that Kasdan wrote in episode four when Han Solo's on the intercom. He's like, fine, uh, how, how are you? You know, yeah, and yeah, then yeah, shoots yeah. it and goes boring conversation anyway. That's the kind of comedy that... And and that's akin to um, uh, so, uh, Han Solo's character. Yeah. Not out of character for him to say a, a funny line at that moment. Whereas like, if Lord and Miller had their way and everyone's got this like very slapstick kind of line of dialogue i feel like a lot of of like original star wars fans would feel <laughs> even more betrayed which they had they not already felt betrayed with the last jedi like who knows what that well, would have done to the fans like uh, you're we're talking about something very important here and that's just like how disney is handling the comedy in these movies because arguably that's been the biggest complaint not just about this movie but about uh rogue one 
and Last Jedi as well. People did not like the comedy in Last Jedi. And Rogue One, we'll talk about this more in depth next week, but you know, you have that Vader line where he's like, don't choke on your aspirations, director. And you're just like, am I, am, am I supposed to laugh at this? Like, like is, is, is this funny? Because anyway. Vader's not one to make puns, but anyway, but we could be here all day talking about this. I think it's a, it's but a really Anakin great... is, which is like, it's like, I don't know. It's a weird middle ground. There are Does moments... he lose his sense of humor as he becomes more of Darth Vader? I don't know. I guess. He does have like some funny moments <laughs> in the other movies, I guess, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, are you ready to get into the synopsis of this movie? I think it's about time we actually talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. It is a lawless time. Crime syndicates uh, compete for resources, food, medicine, and hyperfuel. <laughs> Gotta be fake for the hyperfuel. On the shipbuilding planet of Corellia, the foul Lady Proxima forces uh, runaways in, into a life of crime in exchange for shelter and protection. On these mean streets, a young man fights for survival, but yearns to fly among the stars. Did you like this? Like, let's talk about the anthology openings for a little bit, because we'll talk about it more next week. But Rogue One has no opening crawl, has no opening verbiage. It just kind of starts. This one, they took a kind of medium approach where they have like opening text, but it's not technically a crawl. So Do you like that? I don't like that. I feel like these movies need to shoehorn that in there. Like, I think this movie could have done fine without it. I felt like it's too much like they're trying to cater to the style of the of, of the whole franchise, the episodic franchise, because they know that's what fa fans are expecting. Like, I feel like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too, to say, how can we tell our own story, but give fans exactly what they've, they're used to? Um, I'm kind of sp uh, split on it. I don't mind it, but I also don't think they need it. I... I don't know. I feel like if you're just going to do the crawl, do the crawl, you know, don't, don't half, don't half ass <laughs> but, it here. But not with the music though. But I also do miss the crawl. I do. We'll talk about this more next week specifically because I think if any movie really needed an opening crawl, it was Rogue One, but I don't know. I, I just feel like mm. the, it just, if you're going to do it, do it. Just do it, you know. Just do it. Yeah. Don't. Um. As as Ron, you know, uh, never never half-ass uh, one thing. Whole la uh, never half-ass two things. Always whole-ass one thing. To quote Ron Swanson, you know. <laughs> there you go. I was a. Uh, I was thinking of Breaking Bad, Mike Ehrman Trout, when he's like talking to Walter. No more half-ass oh, yeah. Walter. <laughs> uh, the film literally jump starts. Han Alden Ehrenreich is preparing a speeder for for his getaway with his girlfriend Kira, Amelia Clark. He finds her down in the slums and hands her their ticket out, a vial of coaxium. In trouble, Han is dragged before Lady Proxima, Linda Hunt, a Grindalid worm, I don't know, 
Han fed up with Lady with uh, Proxima pretends to activate a thermal detonator. It is really a rock, which he throws at the roof. The sunlight burns Proxima, and the hive goes into a frenzy. Han and Kira, in the chaos, attempt to escape. This Lady Proxima thing doesn't work for me. I'm sorry. Like I understand we're in like I, a, I completely agree. Like I understand we're in a uh, galaxy with very with various creatures it's job of the hut is not really like a like obviously job of the hut is not human but i just feel like the design of lady proxima does not match the rest of this movie well the design we can get into later i'll have notes uh, or well but i i and it's not so much her design it's that the whole scene in general because it sets the tone like from right from the get-go i was like oh this is what we're doing it's like a um, you know, you're right. It's That's a, a better a, way of looking at it. It's a prison break. It's a comical prison break kind of like atmosphere where you're having fun watching the hero escape, you know, mischievous, uh, you know, events. And so, like, it's more so Lady Proxima herself is like problematic, but it's more so the whole scene. I'm like, I get what you're doing. It's not much different than showing who a character is by throwing them in a, a scene that has nothing to do with anything else from the movie, but you're showing whatever you're showing it, it helps establish who they are it's it's more of the mood it, i didn't like how they opened it but it's yeah, also you know what you've convinced me to your side it, it is more the mood than her design i think that yeah. the, although i don't think the design matches the mood <laughs> either I, I just don't think that any of it meshes the mood doesn't fit the movie nor does it fit lady proxima you know if you're trying to create this like this uh job of the hut stand in you and need that's to exactly make, what they're doing which is exactly what they're doing i don't need this like weird long tapeworm coming out of a ravine like i that's just it it doesn't work for me uh, yeah I, I agree the speeder chase leads the couple to a narrow alleyway which han nearly makes but they make it to the station the port is filled with imperials as they wait online trying not to be conspicuous proxima's goons arrive at the gate the couple successfully bribes an imperial officer with the coaxium the victory is short-lived while han makes it through the gate kira is grabbed to avoid to avoid apprehension han signs up with the imperial navy with no family of his own the recruiter names him um solo jesus christ so a lot to unpack here as well. One, I want to say more than anything, the production design of this sequence, excellent. It's, I, I love that with the empire all around you, even if you look at like little details on the hollow nets that are like sprung about, it's like cool because you see like the Imperials. Uh, army and like their glory and like it's just a great the visual Absolutely. visually it works and yeah i think i feel I, I mean not to tease not final thought the awards really not to tease but like i feel more i think i feel most bad for the production designers in this movie because visually it's so pleasing like it's so there's so many of the sequences for a movie that for otherwise the plot feels so lost on me well that's kind of why i wanted to point out the cinematographer earlier too because he did a great job everything about the look of this movie between the costumes the visuals and again that'll be more final but it's just i it's visually a very aesthetically pleasing movie if you will <laughs> yeah it's just again the content i don't mind kira being taken cool that works for me too but when you get to han getting his name really just this like, 
It, it reminds me of the Amy Poehler and Seth Meyers bit from SNL. Like, really? Really? Yeah. Like, this is how we're doing it? Um, this is how he got his last name? It doesn't make sense to me. No. Then, and then my, and I, we always do this. We're always just don't, don't diving into final thoughts. But it's like kind of like, I, I feel like that's my problem with so much of this movie is you're shoehorning all the stuff that we know about the character that I don't need to see. I don't need to know how he got the name. I don't need... That doesn't do anything for any anyone, I don't think. Not it only just does creates, it not I, I think, do anything, but it <laughs> makes things worse. It's corny, one, I, first of all. And second of all, you're telling me that Han Solo, an ultimate leader in the rebellion, is walking around with an imperial name. Right. Like, he just kept the imperial name. It doesn't even fit his character. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't it's, fit. So fucking stupid all right well, we're gonna work. move <laughs> yeah go, go we're just gonna it. move on here uh three years later han is a foot soldier in the middle of a brutal battle on mimbin uh mimbin mimban 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 the only the only people who seem to be in control of their surroundings are disguised tobias beckett played by the one and only woody harrelson and val the one and only tandy newton and rio john favreau John Favreau. John Favreau. Beckett was Beckett wearing a captain's uniform leads Imperial charge to victory. Han wants to go wherever Beckett is going. He says he is not meant for Imperial life. I was kicked out of the Imperial Academy for having a mind of my own. Beckett sur surrenders Han over as a deserter, deserter to an Imperial officer. As punishment, Han is brought to the beast. Down in a muddy pit, Han first fights and then joins forces with the Wookiee, Chewbacca, who this round is Junus Slippy, Swippy, Swanson, Samson, Swatomo. Swatomo. <laughs> Together they escape from the cell and join Beckett's crew. On the ship, Han and Chewie bond over a shower and a talk. So let's talk about their meeting. Did it work for you? Um, Again, it's not, I just, no, I, I don't know. It didn't really, I'm neither, I, I, it doesn't really, no, I didn't, it didn't invigorate any exciting emotion. It didn't feel like it was warranted. It didn't feel like it was needed. Did I mind it? Was it fun and cute? Sure. <laughs> I feel like they, like they obviously needed to meet in this movie. And I don't necessarily mind how they were trying to set up how they met. But watching Han speak Sheerwook down in the mud pit, just like again, it's it so felt like bizarre. stale comedy. That it's didn't a bizarre work choice. Me. It uh, again, I don't mind them starting out as enemies, then becoming friends. But like, uh, I, I don't think know. they should have even stretched them staying enemies. It should have like it would have almost been funnier, like you were saying in a situational sense, to see them having to stick together. Like maybe they're forced to work together in something and they're rubbing shoulders for a while and stretch that out. Well, the pro the point of, uh, the thing is this sets up a life debt that Chewie ha now has for, or with Han. Yeah. Which is why Chewie stays with Han. I mean, obviously they're buddies later on, but his narrative through this movie is I have a life debt to Han Solo. Yeah. So that's, Again, I don't know if it really necessarily works for me. It's not the worst thing in this movie. Like it's the giving way it's Han handled. Solo's name is probably still the worst thing to me, but it's, it's not it's, it's not ideal. 
I'm I, so many of these choices. I'm like, I'm just like you're saying, I can just imagine them in the writer's room, whoever was in the writer's room at this stage and being like, really, this is the best we can do. And like, I don't know, like, I, really? I just, yeah, <laughs> really, this whole really? movie's just really um, on Vandor one Beckett and a disgruntled Val go over to their plan to steal coaxium from the Imperial train. Val is more concerned about Enfys uh, Nest than the Empire. At the campfire, the team bonds, talking about what they will do with their reward money. Beckett wants to settle down and play the Valakor. Han is gifted his iconic DL-44 pistol. uh, Sorry. Uh, You're going to have to read that line in a minute. I just want to say, like, Tanty Newton's character's name is Val. Her and Beckett are in a relationship, and he's talking about playing the Valakor. I'm sensing, like, some sexual undertone here like he's talking about eating her out because i feel like that's what he's talking about he's like i'm gonna play you you know i love that why don't you come over here and play the valacor and it just cuts to han being like so you you want to you want me to leave you alone for a little bit like i I just feel like the character that they set up with val like val specifically would walk over to beckett and be like how would you like to play the valacor you know something like that oh god anyway go on with no of course um beckett wants to settle down and play the valacor very sexual han is gifted his iconic dl-44 pistol the heist is on val is on the bridge laying explosives rio is in the air and beckett han and chewie are on the train they encounter imperials but quickly get rid of them as val predicted enfis nest and her marauders arrive the plan quickly unravels rio is killed net cuts the ship wires and the Beacon is uh, cut, launching Imperial droids. Val, to get rid of the droids and to ensure the plan goes forward, blows herself up. Han takes over piloting the ship, but must let the coaxium go. The entire... It's really not needed. The entire batch of coaxium crashes into a mountain, which implodes. I just want to harp on this moment for a sec, because I remember remember watching this sequence in the theater and being so like mesmerized again visually i'm like this is probably prob and it still probably is for me i think the most exciting part of the movie this um, it took three months to film this sequence alone it's it's a breathtaking sequence it reminded me a lot of like the action sequences in uh the james bond film specter if you will if, yeah. which i think there's a train sequence in that there in the is. sense where visually the sequence is so mesmerizing and at the end of the day i'm like this still doesn't do anything for anyone. It's a great visual, it's a great action sequence, but like, I, I just remember feeling like I was so amused for the moment and I'm like, it's, and then it's just, I don't know if it's just cause they undercut it to get from one plot point to another, not in the way that, not unlike the way that Nolan crashed a plane into an airport intended just because he, just to get to from one plot point to another. But like, this is at once the most exciting part of the movie for me. And then, I'm, and then I'm realizing like, it's once it's over, I'm like, I'm, well, I'm ready to move on. Well, yeah, this is just kind of set up as it, cause without this plan being botched, Beckett doesn't go to Voss and they don't go on their adventure. Sure. But I like you. I think it's a very entertaining sequence. Yeah, for sure. But I also rewatching. It's like Val. You could have just jumped down. You really didn't need to be so dramatic and blow yourself up. <laughs> um, Infus Nest just showing up. I'm kind of like, okay, like we'll we'll talk more about the character later. But it's like, what is the point of this character? There's just like a lot going on, and ultimately, I'm just like, oh, Rio's dead too. Okay. <laughs> 
like why, do I, why do i care yeah we just met these characters why do i give a shit why do i care yeah 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 anyway beckett puts down gravestones for val and rio after a moment he stands up and punches han beckett explains the coaxium wasn't for himself but for dryden voss paul bettany han suggests they talk with voss and work out a new deal voss's party yacht which looks fucking awesome like yeah if i could have any ship in the star wars universe that's the one i'm taking it's cool on board kira finds han kira is not free from her old life she now works for crimson dawn as dryden's top lieutenant at their meeting with dryden beckett asks how he can make things right dryden says there is no way to do so cryptically adding quote you know who i work for setting everything up there are a lot of clues throughout Dryden then asks for a reason why he should not kill Beckett. Beckett says he can get Dryden all that he was promised. A plan led by Han is formed to get unrefined coaxium from the Pike planet of Kessel. Han, Han's cockiness is put on full display when he insists all they need is a ship, because he's the pilot. Kira vouches for Han. Dryden agrees and volunteers Kira to oversee the mission. So... There's not much really to talk about. It's a pretty good sequence, but the yacht was the is the big. Uh, I mean, the yacht is the big thing, and Kira being reunited with Han is the other big thing. But it's also we, kind of we're like, supposed to care about the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of the problem with Kira's character. It's kind of like, don't get me wrong. We'll get into this more later. I actually do like Kira's character, but sure, her and Han. It's like you know, it's not gonna work out because. Han ends up with Leia. So you're just like a stand in here. It's a ruse. Um, For a ship, Kira suggests talking to the best smuggler who also has quote unquote impeccable taste. Lando Calrissian, Donald Glover, is seen charming everyone while while he he charms everyone uh, while while playing uh, Sebek. Han sits at the table and introduces himself. Lando mispronounces his name the Billy D way on purpose. And he calls him, I love that. He calls him Han. Uh, it's so good. The stakes of the game are raised as Lando puts his ship up. Han, Han, play, <laughs> Han plays his hand. Han, I was just about to say that. Han plays his hand, which everyone thinks is a winner, until Lando shows a full sabacc. When Lando goes to Han to collect, Kira presents herself. Lando at first is worried as he and Dryden are supposed to be square. The offer for his ship is set out. Lando, coming out of retirement, agrees to join in for forty percent. Beckett talks him down to twenty-five percent. First, they need to go. First, they need to get L three thirty-seven, played by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Lando's droid with a top-rate uh, navigation system, who also happens to be a droid fighting for equal rights. The crew is in place. They head back to the impound to find the Millennium Falcon. He is instantly in love with the ship. Beckett offers to take the boot off for an extra five percent. I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But I accept it. In the distance, uh, Enfys Nest is revealed to be watching everything unfolding. Now, before we Uh, keep going, I just want to make a couple notes here. One, uh, Donald Glover, doing a pretty good job here. Pretty good. He'll, Um, uh, well, we'll, we can talk about him later. I'll I'll be talking about him later. Yeah. Two, uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Good time to get in on this business for Disney. This is right before Fleabag really explodes. So oh, that's right. Yeah. This is like before she became. She who also she is. um, 
she also i don't know if it's just her or the way they wrote the character but she's also like perfect for this droid character it's oh, a really I the was, droids are hit and miss but i was she gonna really say that most it. of them are hit uh of all the characters in the disney era i feel like the droids are the most consistent you know yeah. you have bb8 who is universally loved you have k2so who i'll admit that i love that character you know we'll get more into him next week and you have l3 who's like a really cool character too they 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 seem to be doing it yeah they do it right they do it right but uh now just like outside of star wars donald glover and phoebe waller bridge have become very good friends in fact they are doing a mr and mrs smith tv show for amazon that's right i forgot about that so we're looking forward to that or that's at least pretty cool. i am well, it's got to be better than the, the movie, you know. <laughs> anyway, go on. Um, on the ship, the entire crew bonds. Han and uh, Lando swap stories about their parents. Beckett uh, plays uh, Dejaric. Kira plays with Lando's massive cape collection. She's interrupted by a horny Han. She warns him that she has done terrible things, but they kiss anyway. Of course. Beckett puts a stop to this warning. Uh, Han that she cannot be trusted. Kira and L3 then have girl talk. L3 says that Lando loves her, which don't worry. Uh, it works. Which, uh, yeah, don't worry, it works. I was going to say- I don't know um, how, but somehow it works. Uh, which I was going to say, props to Star Wars for getting you know progressive with this- uh, With you know, robo-sexuality. <laughs> Robo-inter-robotic uh, inter relationships. Uh, the crew land on Kessel. The plan is running smooth. Kira poses as an as an official. Beckett, her bodyguard. L3, the translator, and Han and Chewie pretending to be slaves. Once in the mine, Han and Chewie break free and head for the coaxium. Chewie, spotting other Wookiees being tortured, runs to help them. Han gives his blessing. I just want to make a quick note here because I don't want to harp on it, mm -hmm. but those Wookiees looked really terrible. Like the costuming just like looked really <laughs> terrible. They looked like a shaved down, like ugly. It, it just didn't work. Um, Kira, it was like a bad spirit Halloween costume. Yeah, it did. Kira, Beckett, and L3 take over the command center. Chaos takes over as L3 starts a droid rebellion, which leads to an outright uprising. Lando recording his memoirs, the Lando Cal the Calrissian Chronicles, which is a hark back to books that are no longer canon. But I, I found it hilarious that Lando is just in the cockpit, like recording his memoirs. It's cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's great for his character. Yeah, he notices the shooting outside and immediately knows it's L3's fault. Chewie comes back. Together, he and other Wookiees with Han load the coaxium onto the Falcon. The firefight has gotten bad enough that Han joins Lando in shooting the incoming pikes. L3 is shot and Lando destroys... Lando carries the destroyed remains of her body back to the Falcon. In order to escape, Han takes over as pilot of the Falcon. Chewie takes over as co-pilot. The Empire has also arrived and sent out TIE fighters. In order to make the Kessel run fast enough for the coaxium not to spoil, because I didn't really make a note of that before, but it's unrefined coaxium, which means that it will go bad very quickly if it is not refined. They don't have the ability to do it on the ship. They're trying to get to a planet where they can do it really quickly. Um, Han flies into the Acadian Maelstrom. L3's data bank is loaded into the Falcon system. 
in this uncharted region, they encounter asteroids, a giant creature, and the maw. To get out of the maw's gravitational pull, Beckett injects a bit of coaxium into the fuel line. It works, and they shoot into light speed. We kind of, I kind of truncated that. Yeah, it's good that you did. But it, it, it's a lot. It, that that's like a lot of just like in the cockpit yelling it's, at it's one so another much. kind of banter, and you're just like, okay, when when is this going to end? But go go on with the the next part. Um, yeah, because I will. I'll, I mean, I'll just keep. I'll we'll harp on it later. On Sabrine, Han is ecstatic, bragging about doing the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs. Lando looks out in horror to the Falcon, which is in desperate need of repair. The it's air of the least. town is <laughs> ominous. Enfys Nest, to say the very least. Enfys Nest makes her presence known, taking off her helmet to reveal she is just a child, played by Aaron Kellerman. Stop here. I just want to make a note. I remember the first time watching this movie, she takes off her helmet, and I'm like, am I, am I supposed to know what who, who you are? Like, they so... give her like a hero reveal, and I'm like why like so who are you what i read when this came out i could probably find i probably should have found it but uh where i for the source but basically a lot of fans online were th- speculating that this was supposed to be the daughter of woody harrelson and tandy newton's character yeah which and is that not- what ha- right so then what happened is is that the way they play it out it would have been an emotional reveal for that to be a twist right and then it sounds like like this is all i guess fan speculation and that i guess in production and in having to reshoot and having to change the, the they just nixed that that in they left it like playing out the same way that they would because i felt that exact same way i even in what rewatching it i'm like why is the movie telling me to really be really be invested in this moment the and i'm point, not at all the point i feel is supposed to be like oh she's a child and like that's the point but it's not worth the big like quote-unquote hero reveal you know yeah i completely agree but um go on i would yeah i would have rather you know it then do something more with the character but whatever that's i'll get to that later i guess it would have been i don't know it would have been cool if it had something more to do with uh saw guerrera because next week we'll get into him, but there are overlaps. Like uh, the character's name is Two Tubes. He's seen as one of these marauders. And then in Rogue One, he's seen as one of uh, Saw Gerrera's partisans. Sure. So it would have been more interesting to me if you kind of did that. But what the fuck do I know? Continue. <laughs> we digress. Um, her marauders are a gang of people hurt by, uh, by crime syndicates. Together, they are working to help build uh, the rebellion. Han, Han moved, wants to help. Beckett will not be part of it and flees. Dryden's yacht arrives. Han lies, telling Dryden that Beckett was killed. The meeting quickly gets tense as Dryden insists Han hand him a vial of what he assumes is fake coaxium. Beckett is revealed to have sold out Han. The script is flipped. Nest and her crew kill Dryden's men, and the coaxium is in the meeting room. Uh, this is another truncated. Uh, Beckett kills yeah. Dryden's arm. No, it's this is good. truncated, it's good. but this I, is uh, good because you know, and yeah. and I and I don't want to harp on it too much, but it's basically like so much of this is like what I was saying about the high sequences. There's so much going on, but like, how much can we really get invested in? So this is this is yeah. good, but so we'll just 
you know. Beckett kills Dryden's armed guards and walks away with a gun on Chewie and the Coaxium. As soon as he leaves Han, Kira, and Dryden start a battle royale. Kira stabs Dryden, saying, it had to be me. She tells Han to go and save Chewie while she steals artifacts from the yacht so they can buy a ship. Reluctantly, Han obliges. Kira takes the ring off Dryden's finger and makes a call to the real boss. The reveal, Maul, uh, Ray Park, slash, at this time, it's Sam, Whit- Sam Whitmer from the show, from Clone yeah. Wars. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. There's Maul a story orders Kira to uh, Dathomir, uh, ending the conversation by igniting his lightsaber, saying, Kira, you and I will be working much more closely from now on. The duel of the fates fades in. Um, Han catches up to Beckett. Once again, Beckett warns Han that Kira cannot be trusted and that nobody can. Before Beckett can really monologue, Han shoots him, proving that Han did learn from Beckett. Han gives a coaxium to Enfys Nest. In return, he gets a vial worth about 800 credits. On a jungle planet, Lando is playing Sabacc. Han and Chewie walk in and pretend to be mad. Han grabs Lando's arm and hugs him. This moment I actually do like because it is a complete inverse of what happens in uh, uh, Empire Strikes Back because Han is the one who like pretends to be like angry just like in Empire when they meet each other again. Absolutely. It's, like, yeah, it's so you got it's a, a lot good of callback. It's a callback that here. works. Yeah. Come here, you old pirate. <laughs> they play another round of Sabacc for the Falcon. This time Lando <laughs> cannot cheat and Han wins. Han and Chewie load up into the Falcon and make their way to Tatooine. The end. The Oof. end. So, as we are doing with the Star Wars movies, before we get into the awards and before we get into final discussion, we're going to do the Canon Corner. So, for the Canon Corner, let's talk about the crime syndicates because crime pays, uh, crime plays a big in this movie so in the star wars universe there are five main crime syndicates there's black sun crimson dawn uh Kremora, the hut clan and the pikes let's talk about darth maul because this all kind of the syndicates included all kind of like coalesce with uh, darth maul so Darth Maul is from Dathomir. He is a Zabrik. He, he is the son to Mother Talzin, who is the leader of the Night Sisters, which is a planet of witches. Now they use like real magic, not like force magic, like they're like witches. Maul was given to Sidious as a child to be raised as a Sith Lord under the approval of Darth Plagueis, of course, because at this moment there is still the rule of two. Then the fan, you know, we don't know much about his upbringing, but we get to the Phantom Menace and of course, Darth Maul falls. He gets sliced in half. Contrary to what we all thought for a long period of time, he is not dead. His rage subsisted him and kept him alive. He like kept his rage to keep him alive and he snuck aboard a ship which took him to a scaven to a junkyard planet where he kind of stayed for another 10 years until Savage Press, Darth Maul's brother, finds him under Mother Towson's uh, request. Give him crab legs. 
Maul has spider legs, and at this period, I guess somehow he's advanced enough to build legs, but not he's he's advanced enough to build spider legs, but not human legs for some reason. <laughs> but he also went absolutely mad, like literally crazy, like lost his mind because of the rage that he used to stay alive uh, ate up his brain. Savage overtakes Maul in that state, brings him back to Dathomir, and Talzin gifts him new legs and his mind back. Maul believes that Count Dooku is an imposter and wants to rebuild his credibility as the Sith apprentice to Darth Sidious. In order to do that, he wants to build up his resume. He wants to build up his resume to prove that he is worthy and does this by taking his brother Savage Press as his apprentice and they build up uh, the crime syndicates. So they go to Mandalore because Maul also has a lot to do with Mandalore as we're about to find out. Darth Maul goes to Mandalore because he sees that there is a fractured system there. The leader at this time is Satine, the Duchess Satine, who you may remember I mentioned as being Obi-Wan's love, like his love interest. Of course. Movies. She is the ruler of Mandalore and has kind of like turned a new chapter. She wants Mandalore to be completely neutral during the Clone Wars her whole philosophy is peace and prosperity, not in like the imperial way. Like we're going to remain neutral, no guns, no like, you know, no active part in war. Now, this angers some people, specifically uh, the old conservative wing of the Mandalorians, who created a terrorist organization known as Death Watch. Death Watch is how Maul infiltrates Mandalore. He uses them to create the Shadow Collective. Under the under Death Watch, he uh, gets the Pikes, the Huts, and Black Sun to join him in creating a union amongst the crime syndicates. And Maul kills the leader of Death Watch, gaining the Dark Saber and becoming leader of Man ultimately becoming leader of Mandalore. Sidious realizing or finally sensing his old apprentice realizes this is going to throw my plans and finds Maul on Mandalore and schools his ass. He's like, no, this is not how it's going to go. Quote unquote, remember, uh, remember there can only be two and you are no longer my apprentice. So he throws him aside. Somehow, though, Maul gets away with his power diminished. And he tries one more time to undercut Sidious by starting a giant civil war in Mandalore. He tries to lure Anakin to him so he can kill him, but it doesn't work. Ultimately, he is freed and starts the crime syndicate Crimson Dawn, which ultimately becomes the main crime syndicate or the most powerful crime syndicate in the galaxy during the Imperial reign. He obviously goes into the background. Dryden Voss is the face of Crimson Dawn. 
while Maul is really the puppet master. Vader and his inquisitors continuously hunt for Maul, who somehow is left on the Sith planet of Malachor, which is where we find him in Rebels. He has lost his crime syndicate somehow. He's like an old wanderer on Malachor, trying to like find a way to still take down his old enemy, uh, specifically the Emperor. And using a Sith holocron and a Jedi holocron, he discovers that his oldest enemy, Obi-Wan, is still alive. He hunts him down, which doesn't end well for Maul. Maul eats it. This is on, Rebels. This is Rebels. Maul yeah. eats it on Tatooine, and where he is laid to rest. Now, that's all canon. Very exciting stuff. Let's talk about outside canon and casting, because, and specifically this movie, uh, Solo. The hologram was kind of the last step in the entire process of making this movie. Ron Howard didn't know who he wanted in that hologram. He was thinking maybe Darth Vader, maybe Jabba the Hutt, maybe the Emperor. But someone told him, uh, I don't know who, but someone kind of whispered in Ron Howard's ear and said, you know, at this particular moment, Darth Maul is actually alive and running crime syndicates. And he loved the idea. So he pulls in Darth Maul. He gets the original actor, Ray Parker, to come back. And he gets the original voice actor to come back, Peter, whatever his last name is. I can't pronounce it. Now, Peter... The guy on the, I'm from Clone Wars. No, Peter is the one who did the original voice of Maul from The Phantom Menace. He brings him uh, back. Oh, oh, I understand what you're saying. Ray Parker is just the stand-in. Ray Parker is the body. Peter is the voice. Now, Peter is brought back to do the voice again. And he records the two lines and is really, really excited. He takes his son and his son's friends to go see Solo. He doesn't tell them that Maul is making an appearance. He watches the entire movie. Maul comes on screen and whose voice does he hear? Sam Whitworth. Oh God. <laughs> it turns out that Lucasfilm decided, you know what? If we're gonna continue the continuity, we need Whitworth's voice because Maul in The Phantom Menace only has one line where Maul in Rebels and Clone Wars has arcs of story. So Whitworth has he's, played he's Maul more. Taking the new mantle, yeah. So pretty funny stuff. But could you imagine being Peter, bringing your child- Oh man. And just realizing, oh shit, I've Looking been at this premiere. Oh jeez. He wasn't invited to the premiere. He took. I his... have been replaced. You have been replaced. So disrespectful. Yes. So that kind of concludes Canon Corner. Oh God! Well, that's a Why good Canon Corner. Why don't we go into the awards here? Why don't you start us off? Well, first tell the people what the awards are, Let's and then it. start off. As always, we have most iconic moment, clunkiest dialogue, the John Williams Award. Uh, best creature or droid design, uh, standout character, best use of the force. Um, so most iconic moment, I got to go with uh, Han meeting Lando 
I think it's the only moment that for a movie that plays so much expectation on moments that we've seen in the original franchise that feel like they're placated to like a fun or comical callback that as we were saying before doesn't seem to work for either of us for a lot of the time I think their meeting uh, is iconic it just be and part of it is is Donald Glover and Lando what they do with his character but like it just it felt warranted it felt natural it didn't feel forced and it didn't feel like it was a you know, it didn't feel like it was a big moment that we didn't need. It was very welcoming. I really enjoy, enjoyed it. No, that's a good one. That's a good one. Mine isn't too far off. I went with Han meeting the Falcon for the first time. I, the way it was shot in silhouette and you just like, that was a great sequence. feel the reverence for the ship that he just saw. Because let's not, it, there's a lot to the ship that like in outside canon too. Obviously, Han is from Corellia. Well, this ship is a Corellian ship. These are the ships his father built. Again, he doesn't know his father's last name, but he knows his father worked on a factory in Corellia building these ships. And Han and the Falcon go hand in hand. Yeah. So it's, so it's a, yeah. It should, that moment just, it works for me. That's, that's my pick. Absolutely. Clunkiest dialogue. I don't have any specific line per se, but I will give a sequence and that is when the entire crew is trying to get away from uh kessel like once they enter the acadian maelstrom and they're all just yelling at each other (laughs) and it's just like a lot of information and none of it is like i'm kind of over dialogue when people are yelling at each other in a cockpit it just doesn't necessarily work for me anymore. It happens so it happens so many times. <laughs> Not just in these movies, but in like a, there's a lot of TV shows and a lot of other movies when people are just like yelling at each other in high uh, high stakes situations. High stakes yeah. situations that you know that they're going to get out of anyway. Like we know Han Solo doesn't <laughs> die in this movie. We know that he makes the Kessel Run in twelve parsecs. Stop yelling at each other. <laughs> stop yelling at each other and just do the fucking thing. I just I, it was a lot. What, what, what about you? Um, I mine was a, a, not a lazy answer. I think it's the only obvious one for me that we we went we we don't have to dive into it more, but we already went over it in the reading was how is how Solo got the name. Yeah, it, that's a it, good one. It frustrates me to no end. The officer says Han, big dramatic pause, Solo, and I just it makes me cringe every time. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a that's a good one. <laughs> that's that's really good. I mean, I don't, it's a bad one, but it's I don't, um, good for this award. It's I just there's so much clunky dialogue in the movie, and not in the Lucas way. It's just so much of the like you said. I like your example about them yelling each other in the ship. Is there's so many moments where, especially the end when they're on the yacht and they're talking about the coax, uh, they're talking about all that, all all that bullshit. Yeah, about there's just a the lot back of exposition dumps that just don't work, and I'm like, and and that's why it feels like a bad James Bond movie. It's like so much of it's like plot, 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 and it's like dialogue, dialogue, and you're like, I don't care about any of this. And so there's a lot of this throwaway dialogue in this movie. Yep. The solo line just really bothers me, so that's why I went with it. So, um, John Williams Award for best music. I actually went with the John Williams song. He came back to do one song for this movie and that is Han Solo's theme and that is my choice because the rest of the music is not bad but it's just kind of like there it's um not, it's nothing like yeah I wanted to give props to what I, I didn't even write his name I think it's John I think Powell. it's another 
Yeah. Um, you know, he did a good job. And like, I don't know who scored Rogue One. They did it. Michael we'll talk about we'll, we'll talk about that next week because he did a better job I mimicking Williams. Agree. But for mimicking Williams' style, I think that, like, I, you know, we had said in the beginning that we wanted to call this the John Williams Award. And I think that, the you know, in scoring solo, it's like you can hear the the horns and you can hear the sections that sound like, hey, we're trying to be John Williams, but you can't just imitate great art like that. So all that to say is like you, it's like, it's, I didn't pick that. I didn't pick the, that, the, the theme that John Williams came back for. I went, I went with the Emphasis Nest theme, but even that is kind of like. That's a good song, but I also don't think it fits the mood. The char- it doesn't the fit the character. Like, it's just good. It's just good music. The music is so much stronger than the character is. It comes in and it's like point. really good. It's like, That's good, a great like point. I said, it's good music, very solid and like chill inducing, but it's like, this for, isn't. For, for who? Yeah, not only does it not fit the character, but it doesn't fit the sequence that they're putting it in. It just like comes out of nowhere and you're like, okay, cool. This is one of those examples that you and I've talked about in past movies where the music isn't necessarily the problem. Even if the music isn't as notable as what they do with Rogue One, but um, it's very just, it, like like you said, like, that was a great way of putting it, what you just said, is that it's a the music's so much more powerful than the character. It's so much. I also much... think that uh, what's his face, um, the one, the guy who does music for uh, the Mandalorian, Johan Gorson. Uh, oh, he's I can't great. His name, but um, he does the music for Black he's Panther. Great. He did the he, music he, at Tenet. Right? We talked about him a little bit, but yeah, he kind of proves that you can do Star Wars music without really emulating john williams and it still works of course you know, like and we that's were saying what about george lucas do something fresh do something new and i feel like maybe not you know maybe this could have been one of those situations where you could have done something a little bit more fresh rogue one we'll get into it next week um what is your best creature design so I actually had Lady Proxima on the <laughs> on the list as a runner-up because I liked, you know what it is, it's, and we've talked about it, I'm such a sucker for authentic production, and when I see puppets, I can see where, where it, when she looks like a puppet, that it's good. But No um, puppet, no puppet. You're the puppet. You're the, <laughs> um, but I think the, the scene just, uh, it doesn't, because like we said, it doesn't do anything for me. Well, that's, um, I, I want to go back just for a second and like clarify my comments. I think that it is a very well-constructed puppet. It looks good, but that puppet doesn't fit the character and it doesn't fit the <laughs> mood in which it has been established. It just, it doesn't necessarily work. The problem that this movie is like for the production designers, because so much of this looks great. It sounds great. It's it's an, it's a well-done production. And, and I'll get into why I feel it's wasted, but so anyway, my pick is actually the poker table aliens because Mine they too. have no dialogue I'll and they look great. There's the two-headed guy. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> the guy with the multiple eyes. I think I think that scene works so well because it feels like um oh my oh feels my like God, the I most size least cantina. Um, the cantina. It feels like Absolutely. It's the most OG Star Wars looking scene, I think, in this movie in terms of its atmosphere. There's puppets everywhere. And again, I'm a sucker for puppets, clearly. But 
the way that those prosthetics, yeah. the way those little guys look, they they're just chilling and like they fit the mood. It's one of the rare times where the characters fit the mood, and I just that's it. So yeah, I'll let you say more on it. No, I really don't have much else to say. It's just like it, it feels very Star Wars to me, where you have a blend of humans with aliens, and I like having that in Star Wars movies and TV shows, you know. That's something you see more in like Rebels and uh, Clone Wars, especially. You have more like diversity in species that you're watching. And it was nice that they took the cost to do that. Uh, for standout character, I went with L3. I feel like there are a lot. I mean, I could have gone with Maul. Maul was my backup but I don't think he was in it enough to really warrant it. Where L3 is, again, she's not like in it for that long of the movie. She she makes has, a great presence. Yeah, she maybe has like 10 minutes of screen time total, but in that 10 minutes, her she like steals every scene that she's in. And she's such an interesting droid. I like the character that they gave her, you know, but... That's my standout character. The droid, the droid, like you, we were saying earlier, we don't have to harp on it again, but it's just the droids, like you said, they often work. And this this one stands out, I think, more than almost any other character in the movie. Um, I went with Lando. Mm -hmm. That's an easy answer. But uh, also being a Donald Glover fan, I just think he brings a charisma to this movie in a way that no other really actor, including Alden, I think really does. I'm not I, Alden's fine, but like I just, Lando does this, what Donald Glover does with the characters, he hits this middle ground where he's doing Billy D. Williams, but he's also doing his own thing. And it's really, it's really rare, to, I think, to see. It's, I think, not since you and McGregor doing Obi Wan has someone done exactly that, where they're like they're so they're so accurately mimicking the old actor while doing a, their own genuine thing. Um, so I think Glover like nails the part, but also just the way that. They wrote Lando. Um, I know that there was a big, I don't know if it was came from Kathleen Kennedy. I think it was just fan fan talk, but there was a lot of talk after um, this movie came out that they people wanted to see a Lando spinoff movie. And the more and I, we're getting a Lando spinoff TV show now. Right. And the more I, okay, so it is, so it's an official thing. It's but, official. Cause, cause it's the, not official which Lando we're getting, though given Billy D's age and his ability, I, I'm not saying this to be funny, I'm not, but it no, was very clear in Rise of Skywalker, he needed that cane. And I just don't know if you can make a TV show with like a yeah, high action stakes TV show that you need a Lando show to be with Billy D. Williams at this particular moment. It'll look like Kingdom of Crystal Skull and having a you know a seven year old man hobbling around. You know what I mean? It's just gonna be. It's, it's, but but the but with the notion of a Lando spinoff, it um, and it's uh, teasing final thoughts a little bit, but it's kind of like I almost watching what they did with Lando and like maybe wish that they this was a Lando spinoff movie because then I wouldn't it wouldn't feel like you need all these shoehorned Han Solo moments and you could have done whatever a completely fictional story you wanted because everything for me surrounding Lando and L3 and all of that environment felt more natural to me than anything they were trying to shoehorn in with Han and, and Chewie. Yeah I, I agree. Um, so best use of the force this one was pretty difficult I would say given um, how limited it, the force is. 
So I went with literally the only use of the force that there was, which is Darth Maul grabbing his lightsaber with the force and uh, holding it up in the hologram. Some people think that that moment is a bit of fan just service. Said, wait, for Maul. What? Yeah. No, I, I'm sorry. That was my answer as, as well as the Darth Maul just yeah, being yeah, there yeah. and... I mean, some people think that that's a bit, not Maul being there necessarily, but him grabbing the lightsaber. Some people think that's fan service. I don't. I think that it is good for the character because Kira just told, uh, Kira just told Maul that his like top guy was killed by like some low ring common criminal Beckett. And he's not really buying the story. I feel like I picked up on that more, or I'm like projecting my feelings right. on it more this time. And he's like, sure. Yeah, sure. And then he holds the lightsaber up to be like, <laughs> you're going to be my new top dog, but like, you're you need to know bitch. you are my bitch now. <laughs> exactly. I also got like kind of a Hyman Roth situation out of it yeah. where he's like, I didn't ask who gave the order. <laughs> because it had nothing to do with business um uh i would love i hear you i would love that uh so those are the awards so let's get into final discussion here uh i guess i could kick it off so how do i the question is how do i kick this off how so I think that this movie, I said it at the beginning of the pod, is fun, but fun doesn't necessarily equate to necessarily good, nor does it... uh, The problem with this movie, okay, is that I just don't think it warrants its own existence. That let's get to the crux of it's it. It's utterly pointless. It's utterly pointless. Yes, it's fun. What I'm watching on screen is like entertaining but that doesn't mean that it's needed. The biggest problem I have- It's a bad James movie, Bond movie. Yeah. The biggest problem I have with this movie is Han learns the wrong lessons or we take away the wrong lesson in this movie. The point of this movie should have been, this is how Han Solo becomes a person who trusts no one how he becomes a person who cages himself off to the world. But because it is about a hero's journey, that's not what we get. The moral of this story is that Han is a scoundrel with a heart of gold, which is which undercuts his entire arc in A New Hope. Because now when you watch A New Hope, you're like, oh, he's gonna return to save Luke. Like, of course he is. But so like in that regard, it's just not warranted. It's not needed. I don't, I don't know. Go, go on if you have, if you want to carry this. No, no, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to, I know I just, it's a discussion. I want to, I don't want to, I want to add on. It's just, um, it's, it, it's the, it's the, the biggest, the, the most harmful thing this movie does is like we, the word you use undercut is perfect. It just completely undercuts everything we know and love about Han Solo because you're turning a comical side character into a hero and you're giving him all the flaws and all the traits of a typical hero. You know what I mean? And like, I don't need to see, I don't need to learn 
anything about Han Solo that I learned in A New Hope. I don't need to see the Kessel Run. I don't need to see how he got his name or his blaster or see how he met Chewie. Like I said, I liked how he met Lando, but like so much of this is like you're ruining the mystique behind what was a, what's a fun character in the original franchise. You're you know what I mean? Cutting a lot of a lot of it again. I don't know if. Land, like Lando to me isn't the problem. Han meeting Lando isn't necessarily the problem. I feel like of all the meetings and all the relationships, that's kind of the one that works the most for me. Like of all the meetings and takeaways, that one works the most for yep. me. But so I'm kind of happy Lando will be back with his own TV show too. I think really that's my biggest takeaway from this movie though. This movie felt like it was the most Marvel of all of the Star Wars movies. Oh, because God, yeah. this one felt like it was starting a franchise more than it was warranting its own film. It felt Ant-Man and the Wasp came out a couple months after this, and I had very similar feelings. A lot is happening, yet nothing is happening. That's actually a great and there way of putting it. Only one move, there's only one shot or one like sequence in the movie at the end. That, that is more interesting to me than the rest of the movie. In Ant-Man and the Wasp, it is like the snap. But yeah. in this movie, it's Darth Maul. And it's like not even about this movie. It's about the possibilities that that moment opens up. And I don't want to sit here watching a two-hour, 15-minute movie for a minute sequence. You just put it perfectly because as we've, and we can do when we, whenever we cover Marvel, I can, we can express it more, but I think that's what you just said is perfect because ever since Disney bought Marvel, I've seen some problematic storytelling um, repetitions where it's kind of like what you said is perfect because it's, you're, you're giving me two hours of story for at most 10 to 15 minutes, if we're lucky of any sort of Easter egg or, or snippet of, of something that's important. And so what you're doing is you're using on solo in this case, placeholder to try and lead to something bigger. And that's why, and there that something bigger is weaving Darth Maul in. That's their, that's their post. That's the, the Marvel's version of the post credit sequence where you're like, Oh, the fans are sticking around. What are they sticking around for? And so it feels cheap because you're 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 nixing any potential for good storytelling and actual character development, and you're doing it at the expense of giving fans a character they already know to just establish things that we're already familiar with. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. just the whole and movie. And I don't want to undercut what you were saying because I agree, it's fun, it's entertaining, but it's not. It's it's so pointless. It was a setup movie for something that didn't metastasize. And honestly, if they were to do a sequel to this movie, I really don't even want Han in it. That's I what really I was don't. alluding to earlier. I think that Lando, the reason it, Lando warrants his own show or movie or whatever it is, is because we, we still don't know a lot about the character. Even from what we get in the original trilogy, he's still more of a mystery. More than anyone, I want a sequel with Kira, honestly. Yeah. And she, to me, is the most interesting of all the characters because she started on the very bottom, like literally in the slums working for a fucking worm and is now Lieutenant to Darth Maul. But somehow, like I said, in the canon corner, Maul ends up isolated on a Sith planet. He's literally stranded, has no ship out. 
So somehow Kira usurped him and took over Crimson Dawn. I want that story. I want to see how Kira. Yeah, show me that story. Yeah, show me that. That's more interesting. You're immediately pitching a better movie than what we got. You know what I mean? Because it's again, I like not to sound like a broken record, but like give us something fresh, give us something new, and even if you're taking snippets from the old, tell a new story, and and just do something engaging. I just, it's so frustrating to just see it like all line up, and I'm like what do I actually care about from this movie? And it's like, you can sum it up in just sentences and just take away a couple minutes. And that's, and you know what it is, is we're desensitized. We see tons of spectacle action blockbusters all the time. So when you see it, you're like, wow, it's fun. And like I said, with the heist sequence, it's fun. And then it's over. And then I'm like, okay, I take away nothing from this. Yeah. And again, I don't know whether Phil, whether Lord and Miller would have made it better or not. I just know that I know what they were going for with Ron Howard. They wanted someone to like an experienced director to come in and steer the ship in a, like, maybe not steer the ship, but to hold the ship down. That was really what it was about. Get an experienced director who knew what they were doing to like sure. ready the ship. But I feel like you, you could have done that with a more vibrant director or someone who's a bit more interesting. I, again, I don't mean to attack Howard, but like I said before, his movies have become a bit stale in the past couple of years. I don't think it's entire. And, this, I don't think yeah. this movie's failure is entirely his fault, but I'm he's not saying certainly, it's his fault. I'm just saying he's you know, certainly he may not part have been of the problem. The best choice to ready to like steer the ship clear. He's part of the, of the problem. Yeah. I feel like Ron Howard's entire approach to directing this movie was like, how would George have direct how did George direct American graffiti and just kind of like used his experience on American graffiti to shoot this? It's the problem with this movie in general is it's it's copying too much of what of what we know. It's it's just it's co- like we like I said, the, the music is trying to copy John Williams, and the music is great, but it's not the same. And it's uh, you know, the production design is incredible, but for Something what we purpose? We didn't talk about. I just want to like talk. We need to talk about this because this is important. What did you think of Alden Ehrenreich's performance? Because obviously, taking over for Han Solo is a huge, huge responsibility. Do you think that the failure of this movie was on him? No. Do you think that he did a good job? A bit? Like, where where are you on the spectrum? I do, I personally think that I, I don't I don't I think the guy's fine. He puts on a fine performance. My beef with it is that I did, I can suspend my disbelief so much in movies, but I can't believe once for once for one frame of this movie that this is actually Han Solo because I associate Han Solo so much with Harrison Ford. So it's part of the problem. He's part of. I can't explain it. Doing this movie without without Harrison Ford is part of the problem. Obviously, you couldn't do it with Harrison Ford, but it's also like the the two are so embedded in as one. I I feel like a Han Solo movie. It felt like someone was pretending to be Han Solo. You know what I mean? Which yeah, that I never said, once bought into it. So, but all I have to say is, even if no, I was just gonna say that being said, I prefer Alden Ehrenreich right now than five years down the road if this had been made or if this were made maybe three years from now i guarantee i guarantee without like any hesitation they would have put the dots on alden ehrenreich's face and it would have been han solo juxtaposed on top well i don't uh it would have been who's harrison ford's face on top 
Yeah, it would have. They would have put Harris. They would have done a deep fake and put Harrison Ford's <laughs> face on top of whoever they got to play. Well, on Solo, I think it's a touchy subject. Well, not. So, it was more touchy with with Carrie Fisher because when they did what they did for her in Rogue One, I think uh, well, she, she was had still not, alive. At she point. had not passed away. But because when she passed away, I think Kathleen we'll Kennedy said that we next will. Week, we will. They said we'll no longer use Carrie Fisher's uh, face. Likeness, like we're yeah. like they're, we're not going to like. Right. Harrison so, Ford is still alive. And I guarantee he's the kind of guy, if you went up to him and said, hey, for like $10 million, can we use your likeness for Star Wars movies forever? He would go, yeah, I don't give a fuck. Of course. I don't, I don't He'd probably say, I don't give a shit. A <laughs> million dollars? I don't give What's a fuck. What's funny is when this movie first came out, uh, yeah, sign the check. I remember seeing YouTube, and you can look it up. Someone did a deep fake of just a couple scenes with Harrison Ford's face. And even then, like, it felt... I don't know, like there's a sense of calmness to know that like it looked like that Har- I was seeing Harrison Ford because again, like Indiana Jones, it's like Harrison Ford just is that character. It's not so like, you know what I mean? Harrison Ford's just being Harrison Ford. I think Alden Ehrenreich did a pretty good job. I, sure. I, I'm not just, I'm not discrediting his acting. I, Alden's fine, you know? I, I guarantee, I, I think he gave it his all. Sure. It's just that it was a task that no one could have reached it's task that not even like daniel day lewis could have met in his like daniel day lewis in his like younger days i know could what you have mean met. like in his prime yeah yeah, yeah. well um, i can't say prime because daniel because he day was lewis always he was always himself his, every time he was always but, in his prime but i'm um, saying when he was younger even i don't even think he could have done this i don't think i don't think alden's the problem at all i think you could have put in someone who could have mimicked harrison ford exactly and the movie still would have been what it is it's still problematic yeah man so i guess my final question to you is would you recommend people watch this like new star wars fans do you recommend that they watch it no 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 i actually recommend this and it's funny because it's an entertaining movie but i completely recommend a skip i i I would if i were to have a skip uh yeah if i were to have a uh see here's the thing you may you may be different because all right so i'm a little naive because i have not seen the clone wars and if you think maul's presence in this movie depending on what happens later with this franchise if they continue to do more with maul and the live action stuff which i'm sure they will it'll bring up it'll bring up this greater question of like if you were to have a child or you were to have like a a friend or someone you were that you were held dear and you're you want to show them brand new star wars and we've talked about the order of showing them rogue one before the franchise like i agree with that we can I, i think we should get to this at the very end of our whole show of where we stand with I don't know, kind of the order overall, especially these spinoff stuff. But like, yeah, yeah. if I'm not showing them Clone Wars, how important really is Maul's appearance even in this? Because to the casual movie fan, Maul was chopped in half and it's kind of like... I know for a fact that a lot of people walked away from this movie going, wait, does this take place before Phantom Menace? Because of Maul's inclusion. I had at least three text messages from friends who were like who were confused by Darth Maul being in this movie at all. They were like, what is going on? And here? that means the movie did a bad job setting up what it needed to set up with that. And no, that, I don't I know. I, I would comp- it, as entertaining as it is, I would skip it. If I were to show it to a fan, I'd say, listen, if you fall madly in love with Star Wars and you want to revisit this, God bless. <laughs> you brought up something important. I honestly, if I were talking to an up-and-coming Star Wars fan, I would say this is like the bottom rung of what you need to watch. I would say watch Rogue One, the original trilogy, the prequels, 
Clone Wars and Rebels. And then if you truly want to keep going, watch the sequels and Solo. But we'll we'll get into all that later. I think this is a good place to end this I completely discussion. agree. So uh, tell us, what is your pick of the week? All right. So I thought long and hard about this because I was thinking about <laughs> nothing quite came to mind. Uh, so, some crappy stuff came to mind and I was thinking prequels. And I'm thinking a lot of prequels don't work and I'm thinking some prequels do and I'm thinking I'm too focused on it. So I'm thinking about spinoff characters. So I went with uh, uh, the final uh, uh, X-Men Wolverine spinoff, Logan. <laughs> Okay. So you went I, uh, from a young man so coming I'm, to his own to an old man dying. Okay. Because it's a spin-off. So I mean, arguably Wolverine was the center of the X-Men movies all along, even though X-Men and I don't in think theory, that's an even argument. That's like Well, X-Men X-Men in th- the reason I would use Logan is because X-Men in theory is about a group. And then you've tried to spin off Wolverine two times. The first time it didn't really work at all. The second time it kind of worked until the ending. The time they got to Logan, it they made it work. I mean, I just think that movie is a complete wonderful movie as a standalone. That's a tour it works. Divorce. It works with callbacks to X-Men, but it's also its own thing. And it's a spin-off movie done right. And spin-off movies are not easy to pull off. So Solo is not a spin-off, I would say, is done right. So I could pick plenty of other movies that, you know, I mean, I could have gone with the, you know, even like X-Men Origins is like, it's like the, not the, I'm not saying they're the same kind of movie, but I mean, that, an, so like it doesn't really work i don't need to see how wolverine got his claws he told me this another movie whereas with logan it's like we know the story we know the character but now you're seeing where the character's at in a completely different perspective so that's a good one and I it's love kind logan, of like a polar so. opposite pick but uh, anyway so no, but logan tell good is people a at great home. movie yeah. uh you mentioned it before but i'm gonna go with ron howard's rush i feel like it's the last really good movie that it's Ron Howard directed. It's underrated. And I feel like it achieves what he was trying to do with this movie in a better way. Uh, you see a rivalry between two racers or like two hotshots, which I equate to Lando and Han. Uh, and this that movie, Rush, kind of presented to me a new Hemsworth. Like when I watched that movie and walked away, oh, like, yeah. holy shit, Chris he's Hemsworth a- can actually act. Yeah, he's good. Because up until that point, I saw him in, a, uh, I don't remember if it was one or two Thor, Thor movies at that point, but I, I was never like big on Hemsworth. I was never like, I need to go see a Hemsworth movie, but that movie was like, he's fine shit, as the Thor character, but we, we, yeah, we never really saw Hemsworth like really do his own thing. Yeah. And it introduced me to Daniel Brühl as well, who is going, you know, is back as Baron Zemo on Falcon and Winter Soldier. He's also, yeah. And um, uh, I like to imagine that Ron Howard saw Talladega Nights in theaters, and then he called up someone. He's like, someone get me a where I can like adapt this in a dramatic sense. And then he just did it in his own way. Cause that's. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's more interesting to me as well is that it's formula one and not NASCAR, no offense to NASCAR people, but like driving in a circle to me is not as interesting as driving as on like a well thought out. Uh, track. I agree. Yeah. But that's my pick. Fun movie. Entertaining. I, I, very wild, underrated. Underrated. Yeah. Great soundtrack too. Great soundtrack. Yeah. Um, so that concludes this week's episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? Josh, tell the good people, where can they find you? Uh, you know, 
can find me on uh, Letterboxd under Beesh, uh, B-E-E-S-H. It's exactly how it sounds, Stephen. Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Letterbox at Mr. Filmart, and you can follow the podcast on Instagram at Who's Filmography. So, next week, it's a doozy. Uh, get ready for a lot of death. <laughs> it's going to be brutal. Some Please. would even say that the movie has a death star. Uh, so... We'll see you next week. Get your CGI faces ready because we're about to tackle Rogue One. <laughs>